This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Beat Check with The Oregonian. I'm Elliot Noose. This month, The Oregonian and Oregon Live broke the news that hackers had accessed Oregon DMV data, including what state officials described as personal and sensitive information on 3.5 million driver's license and state ID holders. That's most Oregonians. And everyone potentially affected was advised to keep a close eye on their credit report for possible fraud. So how did this happen? And what exactly do Oregonians need to do to protect themselves? Here to answer those questions is James E. Lee, the Chief Operating Officer of the Identity Theft Resource Center, a nonprofit that advises identity crime victims free of charge. James, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, So Oregonians have probably heard about the DMV hack, uh, but the same incident has affected uh, dozens of government agencies and private companies all across the globe. Uh, What exactly do we know about what happened here? What we know so far is a particular kind of software service, uh, it's called a file transfer service, um, was compromised by threat actors, hackers, who exploited a vulnerability in their software. And that vulnerability had been there for quite some time and the, uh, the threat actors themselves have said that they were in that system for nearly two years and what they did was learned that this vulnerability would allow them to take control of the software system from time to time and extract the data that was within it. Now, this kind of software, and there's also, there's two versions of it. One, a company would have in their own servers on their own location, and another that would be in the cloud. And both of those services had the same vulnerability. So it was both the the local version and the cloud version that was compromised. And what the software did was allow companies to transfer information, particularly large files, within their organization without using email, because email can be compromised. And the thought was, well, this is a far more secure system, uh, and uh, it, it never has uh, the ability to uh, send or receive Uh, information so it can't be compromised the same way an email system can be compromised. But as we found out, there were vulnerabilities that allow the the threat actors to infiltrate the system. And now they've, over time, they have either downloaded information that they have threatened to expose, or they have just downloaded it and they're sitting on it. And what they'll do with it, it is to be determined. Why is this all coming out now? The reason we know about this is because the threat actors themselves came forward and said, hey, we have your data uh, to a number of companies, starting in Europe. um, But these are very brand recognizable named organizations. And then we also found out that it was um, involved both state and federal government agencies. Their total number of customers that are, are affected by this 
depending upon who's you're talking to, which which forensic research company is looking at it or the company itself. But we're still talking about upwards of twenty five hundred different companies who may have been compromised uh, because of this attack and all of the data that they had available to them. So this is a lot of data. Now, you, you mentioned uh the number of driver's licenses and state IDs and other automobile information that they're in Oregon. You have this same situation in the state of Louisiana, that's 6 million. You have uh, other government agencies where the information may not be about individuals like it is with the state agencies, but it is still important information within a government setting. And then, of course, the same thing within private companies could be customer information, could be some sort of uh, intellectual property. It's whatever they had stored that the, that the threat actors had access to. And were there any redundancies built into this system, like encryption as the data was stored, or as far as we know... Uh, are these threat actors able to read and use the data they have access to? We do know that there were encrypted files, but because they had access to the system, which had the encryption or de-encryption available within the system, you, you operate as if they did have access to actually look at the data and extract the data that they were interested in. Now, some organizations are going to have stronger encryption than others. So it doesn't mean that every file that they accessed was, they were able to de-encrypt it. But one of the benefits of this kind of a system is it does have higher security. It does have higher encryption rates and, and tougher encryption. So the, the, the concept of using this system, it makes you much more secure, but, Again, there was a vulnerability in there that the that the programmers themselves of the system did not realize was there. And in fact, it wasn't just one vulnerability. We now find that it is three vulnerabilities. So once the first one was disclosed and a a patch was issued, uh, about a week later, they found, oops, we have another one. <laughs> and they sent out a second patch for that one. And yet a third uh, vulnerability was discovered late last week. So this is not uncommon, unfortunately, in software. And as we uh, move further and further into a software-driven world, we're going to see more and more of these kind of situations where long after the software has gone into production, it, it's, it's being used, we're going to find out that there are flaws that can be exploited by people who want to take advantage of those vulnerabilities. And, and this, of course, is a particularly tempting target because it's being used by all these organizations all across the world to store their most secure uh, or what they what they hoped would be their most secure stuff. That's that's right. So in Oregon's case, um, uh, based on what we have, what we know from the state, uh, the compromised data includes names, uh, home and mailing addresses, driver's license numbers, and the last four digits of uh, social security numbers, again, for uh, 3.5 million Oregonians. Um, how, much, how much damage can a bad actor do with uh, that information? You, you might be surprised as to how much value that information actually has. It can be very valuable, uh, particularly driver's license numbers these days. I'll give you an example. If we were talking about driver's license information five years ago, uh, we would have said that's worth maybe five or $10. And it was primarily a value only to college kids trying to get you know fake IDs to get into bars. Today though, a driver's license, very valuable. 
So an identity thief will pay 100 to 150 maybe $200 for driver's license information, depending upon the state. So the reason they want that information and all of that information you just listed there is valuable. The reason they want it, the reason it's valuable is it allows them to impersonate someone. So we think of identity theft historically as stealing information and account access, stealing things that you can attack me as an individual. That's not really what is happening today. There's all the information that an identity thief would ever need is already in the illicit identity marketplaces. We, you know, we hear a lot about the dark web and information on the dark web. It's not even on the dark web anymore. It's out on YouTube. It's on Instagram. It's in the public web because they don't have to hide. There's just so much of it. The chances of getting caught is very, very low. And they, 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 they barter it. They buy and sell it. But at the end of the day, it's used to impersonate someone. It may be they're going to apply for a government benefit. We found out during the pandemic with unemployment benefits, the number of individuals who applied for a, a benefit and then only to find out when they got there and completed their application that somebody had already applied in their name and was already getting the benefit, or in some cases, people who didn't need it, somebody applied in their name and got it, and they found out because they got a tax bill later. That's all an example of how they're using this information. So it just they just need pieces and parts to be able to pretend to be you. And if they don't have enough, they'll go to your social media and they'll look online. And they'll say, ah, well, I know the dog's name now. Ah, I know their favorite color. Oh, I know they're on vacation in Cancun right now. Uh, so we, between the information that's available in identity marketplaces, the information we willingly share on social media, it's very easy to impersonate someone today. And that's what they use this information to do. And, and of course, in, in this case and others, um, the people who access the information, their first sort of tactic is to... Um, uh, to demand a ransom, a payment, uh, to, uh, to, in, in exchange for not theoretically not releasing it, uh, publicly for someone to do all that. Yeah. And, and with, with ransomware, which has, has, uh, ebb and flowed over time. It, it, it is still, it's a very, very prominent kind of attack. It's not as prominent as phishing and social engineering, but it is, it is more prevalent than, Malware. So what we traditionally think of as, a, as a, an attack, a cyber attack, we think of malware, we think of viruses and things like that. That's not really what we're seeing today that leads to data breaches. We're seeing phishing attacks, which are a lot of social engineering where we, we coax information out of you, uh, but also ransomware. And with ransomware, yes, they will demand payment. And right now, the average payment for an organization is somewhere around $300,000. But then they're still going to turn around and they're going to sell that information in a marketplace for the most part. So it's a double option kind of uh, a kind of attack. And increasingly, the, the, we're, we're seeing new entrants into this ransomware environment where the newer groups, they don't have the same sort of, dare I say, ethics as, the, as some of the older groups, where if the older groups, if you give us the money, we're going to give you your data back and we're not going to sell it. And ma'am, nine times out of 10, they didn't. The newer groups, they're not interested in that. And they're a lot less um, forgiving if you don't pay up and pay up immediately. 
and they're very difficult to find. You know, the, the reality is you have a, 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 a 0.00008% chance of getting caught if you are engaging in ransomware. But why is that number so low? Primarily because they're not in the United States. So even if we found them, the chances of being able to prosecute them are, are very low. Now, we've been much more successful here in the last six to nine months in shutting down some of the ransomware groups from, with a sort of technology tools, but actually finding the people, you know, getting the money back and prosecuting them not very good chance of that happening because they are outside the jurisdiction of the U.S. So given the information that has uh, been exposed here, what what options do Oregonians have now uh, to protect themselves and to protect their, their identities? You know, this is, this is the classic, the information is already out there. It was out there before this and in, in probably in many respects, but even so there are things you can do not to prevent it from happening because you can't prevent a data breach by someone else. What you can do is make that information less useful. So when uh, an identity thief gets their hands on this information, there's not much they can do with it. So the number one thing you can do is freeze your credit. Credit monitoring is great. It tells you what happened though. It doesn't prevent anything from happening. So the best preventative action you can take is to freeze your credit freeze the credit of your family members, including your minor children. Your minor children's information is far more valuable even than yours. So freeze your credit. It's easy to do, it's free. You can freeze it and if you need to access your credit, you can thaw it and then refreeze it again. You can, there are automated processes for doing it with all of the credit bureaus these days. So it's, it's, it's a very easy thing to do and has no impact on your credit score. That's number one because that means someone can't use that information to impersonate you to open up a new account or to try to modify an existing account if it involves credit or um, insurance or uh, a background check that involves uh, getting a credit check. So that's number one. And, and if, and if I can break in real quick, I, I learned on, on your group's website today that uh, even though that is the, you know, it's, it's some of the first advice that you get, it's, it's uh, an option that's available to everyone. Many people don't take advantage of it, even when they know that they've been a, a victim of uh, a data breach. Why is that? A number of reasons. A lot of it is they, they, people view it as being inconvenient. Um, there's still a number of people who just don't know that it's available to them and they don't understand the value of it, but there's the convenience factor. There's also, there's a significant number of people who just say, yeah, my information's out there. There's not really thing to do about it. So I'm not going to worry about it, but the reality, it is very easy and it can, uh, prevent a lot of mischief on the part of an identity criminal. They don't like friction. They don't like anything that they can't do quickly. And especially if they can do it in an automated fashion, you know, if you begin to disrupt their ability to do things like they're going to leave you alone. So that credit freeze is very important first step. The sort of the next step, and this is also gets into this inconvenience factor, and that is make sure you have a different login uh, uh, and password on every account. Now the login can be the same, but it's the password, a different password on every account. 
Now, some of us have upwards of 100 accounts these days, so nobody's going to remember 100 passwords. Um, the good news is uh, you, have, you can use a password manager uh, as an app that you can add to a device. The browser that people use, it's the one we're using right now to have this conversation, which is Chrome. Chrome has a built-in password manager. Edge from Microsoft has a built-in password manager. Safari from Apple has a built-in. All of these, uh, all these tools now will both manage your passwords for you, and they'll generate a unique password when you want or need them to. So we should use those tools to help us keep track of those passwords. Because here's the here's the reason why. If you have a seven-character password today. Even if you have uppercase, lowercase, number, symbol, all that stuff, if you can remember it, it only takes an identity criminal with an automated tool less than 60 seconds to break that password. If you go up to 12 characters with just uppercase and lowercase, it's 300 years. So your password is going to outlive you. So a long password and a unique one to every account. Why to every account? Because if one account is compromised, they don't have every other access to every other account you have. Because what we know from our studies is, you know, somewhere between 60 and 80% of adults use the same password on every account. And that makes it easy for the bad guys to take advantage of us and to compromise our information. And the other piece of advice uh, from uh, from the Oregon DMV in this case and other compromised companies is to uh, take a close look at your credit report um, and uh, and 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 watch your credit. Uh, how how useful is that in in a case like this, uh, especially if you're you know I mean it, if there was a uh, if your data got out there yesterday, uh, you check your credit report today. Uh, it's a point in time, right? So how how can people keep an eye on that? I mean, it, it's like the credit monitoring, you know, that a lot of people have because of data breaches, you know, you're given data monitoring for free um, or some people pay for the services. It, it is a tool and it's a good tool, but it's not a silver bullet. Uh, and if you have those kind of services, they're going to check your credit report for you. You can check your credit report on your own. Um, it used to be once a year. Now, uh, coming out of the pandemic, it is uh, much more frequent and you can check it on your own at all three credit bureaus. And it will tell you if there's been any change in your accounts, uh, in the number of accounts, the type of accounts. So you would see if anyone has, has opened anything. But back to the freeze, if you have a freeze, then they can't do any of that stuff. So the freeze really does uh, cure a lot of ills in this space. It won't keep you from giving your information away if somebody uses what has been stolen to to um, try to extract other information they can use to impersonate you or maybe take over an account, a social media account. If you click on the wrong link, some you know, on an email or a text, it won't protect you from that. But it will protect somebody from opening up new accounts or accessing your credit. Uh, which is very difficult to unwind. Uh, so your organization uh, tracks the uh, publicly reported data breaches. And last year, uh, I think you found that the number of attacks uh, had declined a little bit uh, from a near record um, or, or at a near record. 
Uh, but the number of people whose data was exposed uh, actually climbed. What are the trends here? Is that uh, is that the direction where things are going? Fewer, bigger uh, hacks. It it's a lot. It's difficult sometimes to kind of peg why things happen in the data breach world uh, as they happen. In, in part because we always we don't always get good information. We have a pretty good handle on uh, the publicly reported versions of data breach notices. Actually, I got to commend Oregon for having one of the better data breach laws. Um, what we we saw last year was a slight reduction from the previous year. So 2022 was a I'm sorry 2021 was an all time high. We were 60 data breach notices away from that same high last year. But I got to tell you, this year, we're going to report here in a couple of weeks, the first half of the year, and we just had a quarter that we'll wrap up at the, here in the next week that um, surpasses the number of breaches we used to have in an entire year. Uh, so we're going to have more breaches just just in the second quarter that we had from 2005 to 2014 on an annual basis. So we've seen an acceleration this year and we're on a pace that would set a new record high if it stays on the same pace. Is, it, is that because of uh, the, the recent uh, issue that affected Oregon and others? It's part of it, but it's not a major part, oddly enough. Um, you know, cause we were just now beginning to see the number of organizations report that. So the number of, of, of groups that are actually reporting being a victim of that and then and notifying individuals is still relatively low. It's in the it's in the low double digits. But we had we were on a record setting pace long before that. This kind this breach with the move it transfer software may have a very long tail. So we may get a lot of breaches over time, but right now it's relatively small. Uh, but we're certainly on a pace to have a, a lot more breaches this year reported than we have in the past several years and they'll have several record highs or near record highs. Now we track the number of individuals who are impacted as opposed to the number of records exposed or things like that. And we, we did last year, we, in fact, for the last several years, we have actually seen a steady decline in the number of people impacted. And that's because the, the threat actors are going for very specific kinds of information and not, not trying to get everything that they possibly could from everybody they could get it. So they've, they've been more targeted. And that means there are fewer people who are impacted. The reason why we had such a big jump last year was actually because of three, just three breaches that were late in the year. They were there in, uh, in the in Q4. Up until that point, we were going to have another year of, of a significant decline. But then we had a big breach at Twitter. We had a big breach at AT&T. Um, or at least it was AT&T data. AT&T said it wasn't them, but it was their data. And, and there was an, and another um, that, that uh, uh, people may remember uh, from the a game from the 90s um, that uh, there was a lot of data that had been sitting around un, unused for a while and it, it, it was breached. So those three alone 
totaled more than all of the rest of the victims for the rest of the year. So uh, you can have a big number of victims and a small number of breaches from time to time. And that's what we saw last year. This year, we are on a pace again that would actually have more breaches, but fewer victims. So we have to see how that plays out over time. But right now, we're continuing that same trend of the the bad guys are being very selective about what data they want. They know what they want. They know where to get it, and they tend to go and get it. So with incidents like this becoming, you know, I I guess... whether it's uh, more common or, or just, you know, I mean, there are cases where if you're on Twitter, uh, your, your data may be exposed. If you have an Oregon driver's license, if you, you know, if you're virtually all Oregon adults have had uh, the, some information mm-hmm. exposed uh, as a result of this incident or, or may have been exposed, uh, you know, it, it feels like it's uh, easy to become sort of nihilistic about, uh, yeah. about this whole thing. And, and, you know, I'm sure for people in your position, it feels like a real, uphill climb. Um, and for consumers, like there's no way to protect yourself. So, so one, what, what do you say to people who are feeling help helpless about protecting their personal data? And two, uh, are there, um, public policy solutions or, or other kinds of solutions that could help rein this in and, and make it a less, uh, less of sort of modern, less of a piece of modern life? It's a great question, both of them. Uh, and it, it, it is a hard conversation to have with people sometimes. Um, sometimes it's because perhaps they've done something uh, innocuously and they it contributed to their information being exposed or being misused. And it's, it's a hard conversation to have with people because they just didn't know. Um, and it's very easy for everybody to get kind of jaded about, oh, it's just the information's out there. There's nothing I can do about it. And the reality is that's not true. There are things we can do about, about making the information less useful and, and reducing the impact on ourselves. And uh, it is, to a degree, it's a fact of modern life. But like a lot of other things, we can change our habits to make the impact less. Um, other countries that we don't have. Um, if you look at Europe and the, and the privacy schemes in Europe, which sometimes for people in the United States, who look at those and go, oh, that's way too much government intervention. So that tends to be one of the barriers to getting uh, uh, stronger privacy laws. But the reality is if we collected less information, there would be less information to steal. <laughs> and that's one of the principles um, in the European Union of their of their privacy law is you don't collect information you don't need, you don't keep it longer than you need it, and if it is exposed, then you must tell someone uh, about it within a very short period of time. Now, maybe it's only the government agency responsible for data protection that gets notified, but someone knows that that information has been exposed. In the United States, that's not the case. You're allowed to collect as much information as you want, keep it as long as you want, use it for the most part, use it as many ways as you want to use it. And individuals have very few uh, opportunities to influence how that information is gathered and used. That's changing on a state by state basis, but not uniformly across the country. But the bottom line is if we have standards, if they are enforceable standards, then that's going to, mean we have fewer data breaches, 
fewer data breaches means we're going to have fewer identity crimes. We're going to have less identity theft and less identity fraud because the fuel for those crimes is going to be cut off if we have better standards around data protection. James, I mentioned at the top of the show that um, that uh, your organization, the Identity Theft Resource Center, uh, provides advice to identity crime victims. Uh, who, um, who can access those services and, and what's the best way to go about it? We are available to anyone anywhere in the United States. If you have had uh, your information compromised, contact us. Easiest way to do this is through our website, idtheftcenter.org.org. There's a live chat uh, and we're, and we're uh, multilingual as well. Or if you want to talk to somebody on the phone, because if you have been the victim of an identity crime, a lot of times you want to talk to somebody, you need, you need that peace of mind right now. And then you can speak with one of our advisors. We're not like a call center when you call a financial institution or a retail store or someone like that. If it takes you an hour to tell your story, we're going to spend an hour with you. If it takes 10 phone calls to resolve the issue, we're going to take 10 phone calls to resolve the issue. We are here to help. We're funded by, in part, by the Department of Justice and by uh, corporate uh, donations. So it's free of charge to you, and we will take as much time as it takes to help you resolve your issue. All right, James E. Lee, the Chief Operating Officer of the Identity Theft Resource Center. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like the show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show and tell a friend. The best way to support our journalism and stories like our reporting on the Oregon DMV data breach is with a subscription to The Oregonian and Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time. Thank you.